Chapter Twenty Three of The Red and the Black, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirsty. The Red and the Black, Volume One by Stendhal, translated by Horace B. Samuel. Chapter Twenty Three: Sorrows of an Official. Il piacere di alzare la testa tutto l'anno e ben pagato da certi gatti d'ora che bisogna passare. Casti. Let us leave this petty man to his petty fears. Why did he take a man of spirit into his household when he needed someone with the soul of a valet? Why can't he select his staff? The ordinary trend of the 19th century is that when a noble and powerful individual encounters a man of spirit, he kills him, exiles him, and imprisons him, or so humiliates him that the other is foolish enough to die of grief. In this country, it so happens that it is not merely the man of spirit who suffers. The great misfortunes of the little towns of France and of representative governments, like that of New York, is that they find it impossible to forget the existence of individuals like Monsieur de Renal. It is these men who make public opinion in a town of 20,000 inhabitants, and public opinion is terrible in a country which has a charter of liberty. A man, though of a naturally noble and generous disposition, who would have been your friend in the natural course of events, but who happens to live a hundred leagues off, judges you by the public opinion of your town, which is made by those fools who have chanced to be born noble, rich and conservative unhappy is the man who distinguishes himself immediately after dinner they left for vergy but the next day but one julien saw the whole family return to verrier an hour had not passed before he discovered to his great surprise that madame de renal had some mystery up her sleeve whenever he came into the room she would break off her conversation with her husband and would almost seem to desire that he should go away Julien did not need to be given this hint twice. He became cold and reserved. Madame de Renal noticed it and did not ask for an explanation. Is she going to give me a successor? thought Julien. And to think of her being so familiar with me the day before yesterday. But that is how these great ladies are said to act. It's just like kings. One never gets any more warning than the disgraced minister who enters his house to find his letter of dismissal. Julien noticed that these conversations, which left off so abruptly at his approach, often dealt with a big house which belonged to the municipality of Verrieres, a house which, though old, was large and commodious and situated opposite the church in the most busy commercial district of the town. "'What connection can there be between this house and a new lover?' said Julien to himself. In his chagrin he repeated to himself the pretty verses of Francis I., which seemed novel to him, for Madame de Renal had only taught him them a month before. Souvent vem varie, bien fort et qui s'y Monsieur de Renal took the mail to Besançon. This journey was a matter of two hours. He seemed extremely harassed. On his return, he threw a big grey paper parcel onto the table. Here's that silly business, he said to his wife. An hour afterward, Julien saw the bill-poster carrying the big parcel. He followed him eagerly. I shall learn the secret at the first street corner. 
he waited impatiently behind the bill-poster who was smearing the back of the poster with his big brush it had scarcely been put in its place before julien's curiosity saw the detailed announcement of the putting up for public auction of that big old house whose name had figured so frequently in monsieur de renal's conversations with his wife the auction of the lease was announced for to-morrow at two o'clock in the town hall after the extinction of the third fire julien was very disappointed he found the time a little short how could there be time to apprise all the other would-be purchasers but moreover the bill which was dated a fortnight back and which he read again in its entirety in three distinct places taught him nothing he went to visit the house which was to let the porter who had not seen him approach was saying mysteriously to a neighbour pooh pooh waste of time monsieur maslon has promised him that he shall have it for three hundred francs and as the mare kicked he has been summoned to the bishop's palace by monsieur the grand vicar de frilaire julien's arrival seemed very much to disconcert the two friends who did not say another word julien made a point of being present at the auction of the lease there was a crowd in the badly lighted hall but everybody kept quizzing each other in quite a singular way all eyes were fixed on a table where julien perceived three little lighted candle ends on a tin plate the usher was crying out three hundred francs gentlemen three hundred francs that's a bit too thick said a man to his neighbour in a low voice julien was between the two of them it's worth more than eight hundred i will raise the bidding it's cutting off your nose to spite your face what will you gain by putting a monsieur maslon monsieur valenod the bishop, this terrible grand vicar de Frilaire, and the whole gang on your track. Three hundred and twenty francs, shouted out the other. Damned brute, answered his neighbour. Why, here we have a spy of the mayor, he added, designating Julien. Julien turned sharply round to punish this remark, but the two, Frank Comtois, were no longer paying any attention to him. Their coolness gave him back his own. At that moment the last candle-end went out, and the usher's drawling voice awarded the house to Monsieur de Saint-Gerard of the office of the Prefecture of Blank, for a term of nine years and for a rent of three hundred and twenty francs. As soon as the mayor had left the hall, the gossip began again. "'Here's thirty francs that Grudgiot's recklessness is landing the municipality in for,' said one. "'But,' answered another, Monsieur de Saint-Giraud will revenge himself on Grotiot. How monstrous, said a big man on Julien's left, a house which I myself would have given eight hundred francs for my factory, and I would have got a good bargain. Pooh, answered a young manufacturer, doesn't Monsieur de Saint-Giraud belong to the congregation? Haven't his four children got scholarships? Poor man! The community of Verrier must give him five hundred francs over and above his salary, that is all. And to say that the mayor was not able to stop it, remarked a third, for he's an altar, he is, I'm glad to say, but he doesn't steal. Doesn't he? answered another. Suppose it's simply a mere game of snap, then. Note. C'est pigeon qui vole. A reference to a contemporary animal game with a pun on the word vol. End note. 
everything goes into a big common purse and everything is divided up at the end of the year but here's that little sorel let's go away julien got home in a very bad temper he found madame de renal very sad are you come from the auction she said to him yes madame where i had the honour of passing for a spy of monsieur the maire if he had taken my advice he would have gone on a journey at this moment monsieur de renal appeared he looked very dismal the dinner passed without a single word monsieur de renal ordered julien to follow the children to vergy madame de renal endeavoured to console her husband you ought to be used to it my dear that evening they were seated in silence around the domestic hearth the crackle of the burnt pine wood was their only distraction it was one of those moments of silence which happen in the most united families one of the children cried out gaily someone's ringing someone's ringing zounds i suppose it's monsieur de saint Giraud who has come under the pretext of thanking me exclaimed the mayor i will give him a dressing down it is outrageous it is valenod to whom he'll feel under an obligation and it is i who get compromised what shall i say if those damned jacobin journalists get hold of this anecdote and turned me into a monsieur nonante sank a very good-looking man with big black whiskers entered at this moment preceded by the servant monsieur the maire i am seigneur geronimo here is a letter which monsieur the chevalier de beauvaisis who is attached to the embassy of naples gave me for you on my departure that is only nine days ago added signor geronimo gaily looking at madame de renal your cousin and my good friend signor de beauvaisis says that you know italian madame the neapolitan's good humour changed this gloomy evening into a very gay one madame de renal insisted upon giving him supper she put the whole house on the go she wanted to free julien at any price from the imputation of espionage which she had heard already twice that day signor geronimo was an excellent singer excellent company and had very gay qualities which at any rate in france are hardly compatible with each other at dinner he sang a little duet with madame de renal and told some charming tales at one o'clock in the morning the children protested when julien suggested that they should go to bed another of those stories said the eldest it is my own signorino answered signor geronimo eight years ago i was like you a young pupil of the naples conservatoire i mean i was your age but i did not have the honour to be the son of the distinguished mayor of the pretty town of verrieres this phrase made monsieur de renal sigh and look at his wife signor zingarelli continued the young singer somewhat exaggerating his action and thus making the children burst into laughter signor zingarelli was an excellent though severe master he is not popular at the conservatoire but he insists on the pretence being kept up that he is i went out as often as i could i used to go to the little theatre de san Calino, where i used to hear divine music but heavens the question was to scrape together the eight sous which were the price of admission to the parterre an enormous sum he said looking at the children and watching them laugh signor giovanoni director of the san Calino, heard me sing i was sixteen that child is a treasure he said 
"'Would you like me to engage you, my dear boy?' he said. "'And how much will you give me? Forty ducats a month. "'That is one hundred and sixty francs, gentlemen. "'I thought the gates of heaven had opened. "'But,' I said to Giovanoni, "'how shall I get the strict Zingarelli to let me go out?' "'La chaffaire à me. "'Leave it to me,' exclaimed the eldest of the children. "'Quite right, my young sir.' Signor Giovanone, he says to me, first sign this little piece of paper, my dear friend. I sign. He gives me three ducats. I had never seen so much money. Then he told me what I had to do. Next day, I asked the terrible Zingarelli for an audience. His old valet ushered me in. What do you want of me, you naughty boy? said Zingarelli. Maestro, I said. I repent of all my faults. I will never go out of the conservatoire by passing through the iron grill. I will redouble my diligence. If I were not frightened of spoiling the finest bass voice I have ever heard, I would put you in prison for a fortnight on bread and water, you rascal. Maestro, I answered, I will be the model boy of the whole school. Credita me. But I would ask one favour of you. If anyone comes and asks permission for me to sing outside, refuse. As a favour, please say that you cannot let me. And who the devil do you think is going to ask for a ne'er-do-well like you? Do you think I should ever allow you to leave the conservatoire? Do you want to make fun of me? Clear out! Clear out! He said, trying to give me a kick. Well, look out for prison and dry bread. One thing astonished Julien. The solitary weeks passed at Verrieres in de Renal's house had been a period of happiness for him. He had only experienced revulsions and sad thoughts at the dinners to which he had been invited. And was he not able to read, write and reflect without being distracted in this solitary house? He was not distracted every moment from his brilliant reveries by the cruel necessity of studying the movement of a false soul in order to deceive it by intrigue and hypocrisy. To think of happiness being so near to me, the expense of a life like that is small enough. I could have my choice of either marrying Mademoiselle Elisa or of entering into partnership with Fouquet. But it is only the traveller who has just scaled a steep mountain and sits on the summit who finds a perfect pleasure in resting. Would he be happy if he had to rest all the time? Madame de Renal's mind had now reached a state of desperation. In spite of her resolutions, she had explained to Julien all the details of the auction. "'He will make me forget all of my oaths,' she thought. She would have sacrificed her life without hesitation to save that of her husband if she had seen him in danger. She was one of those noble, romantic souls who find a source of perpetual remorse equal to that occasioned by the actual perpetration of a crime, in seeing the possibility of a generous action and not doing it. Nonetheless, there were deadly days when she was not able to banish the imagination of the excessive happiness which she would enjoy if she suddenly became a widow and were able to marry Julien. He loved her sons much more than their father did. In spite of his strict justice, they were devoted to him. She quite realised that if she married Julien, it would be necessary to leave that Virgie, whose shades were so dear to her. She pictured herself living at Paris, and continuing to give her sons an education which would make them admired by everyone, her children, herself, and Julien. They would all be perfectly happy. 
Strange result of marriage such as the nineteenth century has made it. The boredom of matrimonial life makes love fade away inevitably, when love has preceded the marriage. But, none the less, said a philosopher, married life soon reduces those people who are sufficiently rich not to have to work to a sense of being utterly bored by all quiet enjoyments. And among women it is only arid souls whom it does not predispose to love. The philosopher's reflection makes me excuse Madame de Renal, but she was not excused in Verrier, and without her suspecting it, the whole town found its sole topic of interest in the scandal of her intrigue. As a result of this great affair, the autumn was less boring than usual. The autumn and part of the winter passed very quickly. It was necessary to leave the woods of Vergy. Good Verrier society began to be indignant at the fact that its anathemas made so little impression on Monsieur de Renal. Within eight days, several serious personages, who made up for their habitual gravity of demeanour by their pleasure in fulfilling missions of this kind, gave him the most cruel suspicions, at the same time utilising the most measured terms. Monsieur Valenod, who was playing a deep game, had placed Elisa in an aristocratic family of great repute where there were five women. Elisa, fearing, so she said, not to find a place during the winter, had only asked from this family about two-thirds of what she had received in the house of the mayor. The girl hit upon the excellent idea of going to confession at the same time to both the old curé Chelan and also to the new one, so as to tell both of them in detail about Julien's amours. The day after his arrival, the Abbe Chelan summoned Julien to him at six o'clock in the morning. I ask you nothing, he said. I beg you, and if needs be, I insist, that you either leave for the seminary of Besançon, or for your friend Fouquet, who is always ready to provide you with a splendid future. I have seen to everything, and have arranged everything, but you must leave, and not come back to Verrier for a year. Julien did not answer. He was considering whether his honour ought to regard itself offended at the trouble which Chalon, who, after all, was not his father, had taken on his behalf. "'I shall have the honour of seeing you again, to-morrow, at the same hour,' he said finally to the curé. Chalon, who reckoned on carrying so young a man by storm, talked a great deal. Julien, cloaked in the most complete humbleness, both of demeanour and expression, did not open his lips. Eventually he left and ran to warn Madame de Renal, whom he found in despair. Her husband had just spoken to her with a certain amount of frankness. The weakness of his character found support in the prospect of the legacy, and had decided him to treat her as perfectly innocent. He had just confessed to her the strange state in which he had found the public opinion in Verrier. The public was wrong. It had been misled by jealous tongues. But, after all, what was one to do? Madame de Renard was, for the moment, under the illusion that Julien would accept the offer of Valenod and stay at Verrier. But she was no longer the simple, timid woman that she had been the preceding year. Her fatal passion and remorse had enlightened her. She soon realised the painful truth, while at the same time she listened to her husband that, at any rate, a temporary separation had become essential. When he is far from me, Julien will revert to those ambitious projects which are so natural when one has no money. And I, great God, 
I am so rich, and my riches are so useless for my happiness. He will forget me. Lovable as he is, he will be loved, and he will love. You unhappy woman, what can I complain of? Heaven is just. I was not virtuous enough to leave off the crime. Fate robs me of my judgment. I could easily have bribed Elisa if I had wanted to. Nothing was easier. I did not take the trouble to reflect for a moment. The mad imagination of love absorbed all my time. I am ruined. When Julien apprised Madame de Renal of the terrible news of his departure, he was struck with one thing. He did not find her put forward any selfish objections. She was evidently making efforts not to cry. We have need of firmness, my dear. She cut off a strand of her hair. I do not know what I shall do, she said to him. But promise me, if I die, never to forget my children. Whether you are far or near, try to make them into honest men. If there is a new revolution, all the nobles will have their throats cut. Their father will probably emigrate because of that peasant on the roof who got killed. Watch over my family. Give me your hand. Adieu, my dear. These are our last moments. Having made this great sacrifice, I hope I shall have the courage to consider my reputation in public. Julien had been expecting despair. The simplicity of this farewell touched him. No, I am not going to receive your farewell like this. I will leave you now, as you yourself wish it, but three days after my departure, I will come back to see you at night. Madame de Renal's life was changed. So Julien really loved her. Since, of his own accord, he had thought of seeing her again. Her awful grief became changed into one of the keenest transports of joy which she had felt in her whole life. Everything became easy for her. The certainty of seeing her lover deprived these last moments of their poignancy. From that moment, both Madame de Renal's demeanour and the expression of her face were noble, firm, and perfectly dignified. Monsieur de Renal soon came back. He was beside himself. He eventually mentioned to his wife the anonymous letter which he had received two months before. I will take it to the casino and show everybody that it has been sent by that brute Valenod, whom I took out of the gutter and made into one of the richest tradesmen in Verrier. I will disgrace him publicly, and then I will fight him. This is too much. Great heavens! I may become a widow! thought Madame de Renal, and almost at the same time she said to herself, If I do not, as I certainly can, prevent this duel, I shall be the murderess of my own husband. She had never expended so much skill in honouring his vanity. Within two hours she made him see, and always by virtue of reasons which he discovered himself, that it was necessary to show more friendship than ever to Monsieur Valenod, and even to take Elisa back into the household. Madame de Renal had need of courage to bring herself to see again the girl who was the cause of her unhappiness. But this idea was one of Julien's. Finally, having been put on the track three or four times, Monsieur de Renal arrived spontaneously at the conclusion, disagreeable though it was from the financial standpoint, that the most painful thing that could happen to him would be that Julien, in the middle of the effervescence of popular gossip throughout Verrieres, should stay in the town as the tutor of Valenod's children. 
It was obviously to Julian's interest to accept the offer of the director of the workhouse. Conversely, it was essential for Monsieur de Renal's prestige that Julien should leave Verrier to enter the seminary of Besançon or that of Dijon. But how to make him decide on that course? And then, how is he going to live? Monsieur de Renal, seeing a monetary sacrifice looming in the distance, was in deeper despair than his wife. As for her, she felt after this interview in the position of a man of spirit who, tired of life, has taken a dose of stromonium. He only acts mechanically, so to speak, and takes no longer any interest in anything. In this way, Louis XIV came to say on his deathbed, When I was king. An admirable epigram. Next morning, Monsieur de Renal received quite early an anonymous letter. It was written in a most insulting style, and the coarsest words applicable to his position occurred on every line. It was the work of some jealous subordinate. This letter made him think again of fighting a duel with Valenod. Soon his courage went as far as the idea of immediate action. He left the house alone, went to the armourers, and got some pistols which he loaded. Yes, indeed, he said to himself, even though the strict administration of the Emperor Napoleon were to become fashionable again, I should not have one sou's worth of jobbery to reproach myself with. At the outside, I have shut my eyes, and I have some good letters in my desk which authorise me to do so. Madame Dornal was terrified by her husband's cold anger. It recalled to her the fatal idea of widowhood, which she had so much trouble in repelling. She closeted herself with him. For several hours she talked to him in vain. The new anonymous letter had decided him. Finally she succeeded in transforming the courage which had decided him to box Valenod's ears into the courage of offering six hundred francs to Julien, which would keep him for one year in a seminary. Monsieur de Renal cursed a thousand times the day that he had had the ill-starred idea of taking a tutor into his house and forgot the anonymous letter. He consoled himself a little by an idea which he did not tell his wife. With the exercise of some skill, and by exploiting the romantic ideas of the young man, he hoped to be able to induce him to refuse Monsieur Valenod's offer at a cheaper price. Madame de Renal had much more trouble in proving to Julien that inasmuch as he was sacrificing the post of six hundred francs a year in order to enable her husband to keep up appearances, he need have no shame about accepting the compensation. But Julien would say each time, I have never thought for a moment of accepting that offer. You have made me so used to a refined life that the coarseness of those people would kill me. Cruel necessity bent Julien's will with its iron hand. His pride gave him the illusion that he only accepted the sum offered by Monsieur de Renal as a loan, and induced him to give him a promissory note, repayable in five years with interest. Madame de Renal had, of course, many thousands of francs which had been concealed in the little mountain cave. She offered them to him all a-tremble, feeling only too keenly that they would be angrily refused. Do you wish, said Julien to her, to make the memory of our love loathsome? Finally, Julien left Ferrier. Monsieur de Renal was very happy, but when the fatal moment came to accept money from him, the sacrifice proved beyond Julien's strength. 
he refused point-blank. Monsieur de Renal embraced him around the neck with tears in his eyes. Julien had asked him for a testimonial of good conduct, and his enthusiasm could find no terms magnificent enough in which to extol his conduct. Our hero had five louis of savings, and he reckoned on asking Fouquet for an equal sum. He was very moved. But one league from Verrier, where he left so much that was dear to him, he only thought of the happiness of seeing the capital of a great military town like Besançon. During the short absence of three days, Madame de Renal was the victim of one of the cruelest deceptions to which love is liable. Her life was tolerable, because, between her and extreme unhappiness, there was still that last interview which she was to have with Julien. Finally, during the night of the third day, she heard from a distance the preconcerted signal. Julien, having passed through a thousand dangers, appeared before her. In this moment, she only had one thought. I see him for the last time. Instead of answering the endearments of her lover, she seemed more dead than alive. If she forced herself to tell him that she loved him, she said it with an embarrassed air which almost proved the contrary. Nothing could rid her of the cruel idea of eternal separation. The suspicious Julien thought for the moment that he was already forgotten. His pointed remarks to this effect were only answered by great tears which flowed down in silence and by some hysterical pressings of the hand. But, Julien would answer his mistress's cold protestations, great heavens, how can you expect me to believe you? You would show one hundred times more sincere affection to Madame Derville to a mere acquaintance. Madame de Renal was petrified and at a loss for an answer. It is impossible to be more unhappy. I hope I am going to die. I feel my heart turn to ice. Those were the longest answers which he could obtain. When the approach of day rendered it necessary for him to leave Madame de Renal, her tears completely ceased. She saw him tie a knotted rope to the window without saying a word and without returning her kisses. It was in vain that Julien said to her, So now we have reached the state of affairs which you wished for so much. Henceforward you will live without remorse. The slight indisposition of your children will no longer make you see them in the tomb. I am sorry that you cannot kiss Stanislas, she said coldly. Julien finished by being profoundly impressed by the cold embraces of this living corpse. He could think of nothing else for several leagues. His soul was overwhelmed, and before passing the mountain, and while he could still see the church tower of Verrier, he turned around frequently. End of chapter 23